The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 6th. Today, Theresa May's last stand on Brexit, a curious trip to the Trump International Hotel, and a chance reunion between a post photographer and her subject. If you've been following Brexit, then you know this. People literally have no idea how this is going to end. You know what? People like me are paid, aren't we, to have insight and foresight and hindsight about these things and to be able to project where we're going to go. To be quite honest, looking at things right now, I haven't got the foggiest idea. Last month, this clip of a BBC reporter went viral because of his brutally honest assessment about Britain leaving the EU. Don't know about that either. And things have not gotten much clearer since then. Right now, British Parliament is in session, and Prime Minister Theresa May is fiercely arguing that they pass her latest Brexit deal in a vote early next week. It's the duty of us as politicians to deliver on the result of the vote that the British people gave in 2016 in the referendum. And so far, it does not seem to be going so well. Here's Bob Seeley, a member of her own Conservative Party. It is unfortunate for government to be in contempt of Parliament. Would she agree that it is worse for Parliament to be in contempt of the British people, which is what will happen if we do not deliver on Brexit? The referendum was more than two years ago, but the divorce papers aren't even close to being finalized. And there's not that much time left. The official date of Brexit departure is at the end of March. So we got on the phone with William Booth, the London bureau chief for The Washington Post. How likely is it that the British Parliament is actually going to approve this? All the smart people tell you they're not going to approve it. So I'm not really so sure I'm not as smart as they are. I mean, everyone has called her and her plan dead so many times that I stopped believing them. When people are really, when the parliament is really faced with a vote next Tuesday, a number of people might blink. The prime minister may keep saying, look, it's this deal, my deal. You're not going to get a better deal ever from Brussels, from the Europeans. And and her chancellor, Philip Hammond, said that today. He called people delusional who thought they were going to go back to Brussels and get a better deal if they turned this one down. So it's this deal, Theresa May tells them, or no deal, which is like chaos and food lines and you know, no medicine for diabetes and, the, the you know, the port's all blocked up and Europeans saying you can't land planes. That That's what would happen if there is a hard break. Yes, that's what they threaten, right? Or the third option she recently put on the table in the last few weeks is, oh, OK, then forget it. There'll be no Brexit. Hmm. Now, a bunch of people don't like Brexit are like, yeah, give me that. Give me more of that. But those are fairly stark choices. And I guess there's some thinking that it'll lose on a vote on Tuesday, and that gives everyone some cover. And then, and then you and I have another conversation, though you'll believe me even less, <laughs> next week where um, they take a second vote. It tries to get through Parliament one more time. So when we talk about trade in the EU, like what are we talking about? What might Brexit affect? 
Really everything, because Europe is Britain's largest trading partner. So Brits sell lots of stuff to Europe, and Europe sells lots of stuff to the Brits. So the Brits sell them fish and clams and cheese, and the the, the Europeans sell the similar kinds of things like Spanish oranges and and Italian olive oil, and those things would see changes likely. Because right now they move back and forth between the continent and the United Kingdom as if there is no border. There is no tariff, no tax, no customs duty. There's no inspection because both sides agree what passes through. So it's frictionless trade. So those things would see some price differentials and ch- and changes, and then also industries that really work super closely with each other, like automobiles. What are some of the ways that Brexit could affect interactions between the UK and, and other countries, other European countries, that's not economic? The two sides have very, very close relationships on intelligence and security matters. So they they get to look at each other's terror watch lists and share lots of information about people they want to keep an eye on. That could change. They share space satellites that do communications. They share drug development. They share uh, students being able to go attend each other's universities with great ease without paying like out-of-state tuition. They're all kind of in-state. They're all in EU. Movement of capital would change. How London trades with Frankfurt could change. And a big thing would be the movement of people. So right now, someone living in Paris with a French passport can move to London and get a job the next morning and rent an apartment that day. So there's complete fluidity of movement. For everyday British people, what are they most worried about when it comes to how Brexit moves forward? I think there are two things going on with your ordinary British person. One is, oh my God, make the pain stop, because this is such a um, kind of an annoying debate that seems endless. And so... Some of them just want to know what the doctor says. Are they going to live or die, right? And and then they will make their their plans accordingly. But I think for your average British person, they don't want this to hurt their pocketbook in a big way. They don't want the country to go into any kind of economic shock. People have threatened recession for a no-deal Brexit. The pound sterling plummeting, right? So big economic upheaval. I, I don't think they want that at all. I think what they generally kind of want, if they want to leave the European Union, is to to leave it and have life kind of continue as normal. And that's the deal that Theresa May is trying to strike, right? But that as we've seen, is a tough deal to strike because something will change. They'll get divorced, though they might still like each other and take care of the kids. They won't be man and wife anymore. Thank you so much, Bill. Anytime. If British lawmakers pass Theresa May's deal, it'll go to a vote in the European Parliament. If they reject the deal, the government has 21 days to propose a different plan of action. The ask was sort of vague. We're going to Washington where this bill has just been passed. It's going to hurt veterans. We need you to join us to lobby against it. 
David Farenthold is a national reporter for The Post, and he's been unraveling this story about an unusual lobbying campaign that happened back in the early part of 2017. The whole thing was first reported shortly after it happened, but David kept digging into this trip to learn about how it all came together. It's a story that addresses the complicated constitutional issues of President Trump's businesses. And for the veterans who were invited, it was a bizarre experience unlike any lobbying trip they'd ever been on before. The shock was when they got there and they saw that this was not like a veterans event they'd been to before. And one guy said, you know, I'm used to going places and staying in the Holiday Inn with four other guys in the room and, you know, eating Slim Jims and Ritz crackers. You know, we were, veterans events are done on a budget. Usually, but there was this was different. They are in the Trump International Hotel, one of the fanciest hotels in Washington. They have their own rooms. They have free food, free beer, and they start to look around and go, well, "This is weird. I've never been on a veterans trip like this." The veterans were lobbying against a law that would have allowed Americans to sue foreign governments accused of supporting terrorists, and they were brought together not by some veterans group, but by lobbyists for the government of Saudi Arabia. One of the organizers of that trip, Michael Gibson, he said that the veterans had been told about the Saudi funders. But veterans told David that that didn't happen. Usually when you go lobby a congressman's office, you know, you're given a really strict briefing ahead of time. This is what you have to say. This is the bill you want to advocate for. You're given briefing materials that you can leave behind and say, you know, when congressman so-and-so has a second, have him read these documents about this thing that I care about. And there was almost none of that. They were sent in with very little briefing. One guy described it as like, you know, the, the pitch was 10 seconds long, and then it was like, okay, let's get a picture with the senator. They were given very little to say. And then the other thing that was odd was the timing and the repetition. So a lot of these trips happened in January 2017, February 2017. So at that point, the issue was basically dead on Capitol Hill. Congress was totally distracted by the inauguration of a new president. Washington was totally distracted by the inauguration of a new president. It's not a time when anybody really comes and tries to lobby for legislation. And so they didn't understand, well, who's putting the energy to fly us all and put us up in this really, really nice hotel? And you have to remember, four of these trips happened in January 2017 at the Trump Hotel. Donald right Trump, after the election. He was inaugurated in January 2017. So they weren't there on the day Trump was inaugurated. But this is a month where the average daily roommate at the Trump Hotel was like $780. I mean, it was an incredibly expensive month in any luxury Washington hotel, but especially at Donald Trump's luxury hotel. And then the veterans say word started to trickle out about the Saudi role. And I mean, it happened in sort of the strangest ways. The, the Saudi role, like that Saudi Arabia is, was, was, is sending these veterans to the Trump Hotel? Right. So a lot of them said they weren't told when they were invited. They weren't told when they got there. But then they started to pick up hints. And sometimes that happened in the meetings with legislators. A couple of guys described to me a, an incident in which they went to go talk to a Texas senator who's had a Marine officer detailed to his, his office. And in the meeting with the veterans, the Marine says, you guys are pawns of Saudi Arabia and you don't even know it. And they were like, what? Saudi Arabia? What? Like, why do you say Saudi Arabia? One guy said that was the first time anyone had said the word Saudi Arabia to him. So that was one way they learned from the, the legislators who knew more about them than they knew about themselves. The other way was they described the organizers of these trips who were these veterans from Wisconsin who were sort of the lowest level contractors brought in. That Those people sort of let it slip that the Saudis were paying either because they were sort of directly questioned by the veterans or – one guy described the scene in which they're all in the hotel room drinking mini bar champagne and one of the organizers says, kind of in a joking way, raises his hands up and says, thank you, Saudi prince. And, and like that was an in-joke that he expected them to be in on and they were not in on the joke and they were like, what, Saudi prince? 
So Saudi Arabia brought all these people in and they bought a block of hotel rooms at the Trump Hotel, which, you know, anyone can do if they have the money to buy rooms at the Trump Hotel. Mm -hmm. Why is this a big deal? A couple of reasons. One is which is the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which says that presidents... <laughs> the, uh, the emoluments clause the, of the Constitution? The emoluments. You know, it's rare that... I'm a, I love history, and it's rare that you find something that this, the founding fathers said in the you know 1700s that basically nobody talked about, about again until now. So what it says is presidents can't take emoluments, which means payments from foreign governments or from U.S. states. You know, basically the president couldn't take a payoff or, you know, whoever, Secretary of State, couldn't take a payoff from the King of France. And you also wouldn't want to get like a payoff from New Hampshire to screw over Vermont. Presidents have wanted to avoid even stepping close to this. And so over the years, you know, Jimmy Carter sold his peanut farm so that he couldn't be influenced by buying somebody buying a lot of peanuts. Barack Obama, in one really interesting example, when he got the Nobel Peace Prize in the first year of his presidency, that's a prize that comes from, you know, Norway. And so Obama asked his White House counsel, you know, does this violate the emoluments clause. So the concern here is that the fact that the Saudi government paid a quarter of a million dollars for hotel rooms for this lobbying trip could at least give the appearance, if not the reality, of the Saudi government trying to influence Trump by spending a bunch of money at his hotel. Obviously, Trump has a number of reasons, as any American president does, to listen to the Saudis. To you know, They're a longtime U.S. ally. They're an important oil producer. But no president before has ever had a personal business relationship with the Saudis that, that is separate from his dealings with them as the U.S. president. Is there actually a real concern that the fact that Saudis just spent a bunch of money at Trump's hotels, that that would actually have an influence on how he would conduct foreign policy? The only thing I can tell you here, it's hard for me to get into Donald Trump's mind. And we've asked the White House, you know, and they have basically have no comment about this. The thing that Trump said on the campaign trail about the Saudis, I mean, the issue of like, you know, the Saudis came up when he was running for president and he said, why should I hate them? They buy condos from me. They buy apartments from me. They pay me all this money. Why should I hate those guys? So, you know, if that's his attitude coming in, you can understand why the Saudis might believe that putting money in Donald Trump's pocket, you know, because he's told them that's what matters to him, they might continue to do that. And you can see why, you know, Americans might worry that that sort of relationship where he gives the Saudis preference because they pay him money might not have stopped on the day he was inaugurated. So it seems like the Saudis were trying to maybe hide the fact that they were who was paying for this big trip. Do we know if the Trump Hotel knew that this whole lobbying trip was paid for by the Saudi government? That's a great question. What I can tell you is what we've heard from both the Trump Hotel and from uh, a guy named Michael Gibson, who was the, the lobbyist who actually organized these trips. Both of them said that the Trump Hotel was not told this is Saudi paid. Gibson says, I put this on my own company's credit card. I didn't mention the Saudis. I said it was a bunch of veterans coming in. Trump Hotel executives have told us the same. You know, we thought it was a corporate client. We didn't know it was the Saudis. Obviously, that's not to say that there could have been other contacts between other people who, who shared the fact that the Saudis had paid for this. It was covered extensively uh, on, in Capitol Hill news sources in February 2017, so they would have known after that. But at the time, at least from what we're told, the Trump Hotel was not aware they were hosting Saudi guests. And Trump says that all of these concerns about stuff related to his businesses, like his hotels, that he thinks that that is not a violation of the emoluments clause. His argument, which so far has not worked, I should say, and this has been rejected by judges so far, but his argument through the Justice Department has been when the founding fathers banned emoluments, they effectively meant to ban bribes, just a straight up payment by a foreign government to a president in exchange for some official action by the president. Not a, you know, continuing relationship, not a business transaction, 
they meant to ban bribes. So if Trump sold a block of hotel rooms for the Saudis and they got the hotel rooms and used them, that's not an emolument. That's just a business transaction which presidents are allowed to do. The response from the when one of the cases, the D.C. and Maryland attorney generals, and from the judge who sided with the D.C. and Maryland attorney generals, was that the founding fathers intended emoluments to cover a much bigger circle than that. They didn't just mean to ban, ban bribes. They meant to step beyond to erase any sort of appearance of conflict of interest or possible conflict of interest by eliminating sort of a side, any sort of side financial relationship between a president and a foreign government. It wasn't just a bribe. Earlier this week, attorneys general in Maryland and D.C. sent subpoenas to 13 Trump business entities requesting records of foreign spending at the hotel. Those filings were just the latest step in lawsuits alleging that Trump's businesses violated the emoluments clause of the Constitution. And now, one more thing. A single moment from a family who traveled from Honduras through Mexico in the migrant caravan. Kayla Mejia is 21 years old. She's a single mom to Camilla, who's four, and Samantha, who's two. Carolyn Van Houten is a photographer for The Post. And she captured that moment in a photo that wound up going viral. In the photo, Camilla's wearing a blue floral shirt and pink pants, and she is collapsed on the road. It's dark, and it's lit by a street lamp, and her face is lit by a street lamp, but it's very clearly dark. Her mom is standing next to her. Her hand is flipped open upward, and her face is squinched. She has just given up on even trying to exert the energy to scream. She just can't even do that. Our photographer didn't expect to see Camilla or her family again. And then, more than a month later, Carolyn ended up in Tijuana at the U.S.-Mexico border. It was our first day reporting in Tijuana on the caravan. Thousands of migrants were staying in this sports complex. It kind of looked like, you know, like a little league baseball field, except that in every single corner, in every square inch of it, there was a tent or a makeshift tent. The press was only allowed into the area where the migrants were sleeping at one-hour slots twice a day. So we were walking around and trying to report out, you know, a story about the migrants arriving and sort of what that looked like. And I saw this little girl pop out of a tent right behind me. I was standing right next to it. And I looked at her and I was like, I think that's, I think that's Camilla. I asked her what her name was in Spanish, and she was like, it's Camilla. And I, and she clearly recognized me, and I was absolutely thrilled to see her. And Kayla, her mom, popped her head out too and was really excited. And I think she also understood the odds of me finding her were slim. It had been more than a 1,000 miles and a month later, and they were traveling among thousands of migrants. I wasn't sure if they had even made it to the border. We were catching up about the journey and what her plans were moving forward. And she said that she had been given a stroller by someone who saw the photo. So now she doesn't have to carry her two daughters anymore. That 
That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.